You're listening to Bitcoin and Markets. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My name is Ansel Linder. This is Bitcoin and Markets, episode 24. Today, I don't know how this happened, but I talk a lot about altcoins. Obviously, we uh, the bits and the altcoinville section is all altcoins, but I also talk about um, altcoins in the bits and pieces mostly. Then the featured article is on solar power and some of the gains we've seen there. And I finish it up with Flashpoint, which is about the India-Pakistan situation and my thoughts on that. But before we get into the pre-recorded content, I have something I didn't record a segment for, but I wanted to mention here up front, and that is Janet Yellen made a few comments. She was doing some, I guess, uh, presentation or teleconference, or I'll put a, a link to this information in the show notes, but she was talking about the Fed wanting to be able to buy stocks from the Fed, the Fed themselves buy stocks, and she wants to expand their policy tools, their, what they can do to prop up the economy. Now, why hasn't this been in their tool chest before? Because everybody knows that it's bullshit. You can't print money and buy stocks and think there's a real market. It's, it's so far gone that nobody will believe it. I mean, this is something straight out of, like, Venezuela, people. And this is happening at the Federal Reserve. I mean, everything they do, the only thing they do is print money. And all of their policies, all of the things they do is just a variation on that. They print money and they buy bonds. They print money and they buy stocks. They print money and that's all they can do is print money and do different things with it. So and expect this to happen. I mean, this has been dropped now as a part of the narrative. Um, they're going to go negative on their rates, and they're going to be buying stocks. Because that's all they can fucking do. All right. <laughs> yeah, I, I just saw that yesterday, and I wanted to get that in here real quick. But let's get on to the main uh, segments of the show, starting off with bits and pieces. Bits and pieces. Next up, Cointelegraph. Santander confirms fiat-backed token project on Ethereum blockchain. Santander is using Ethereum for a digital token backed by cash in the bank. It's kind of silly because Santander is insolvent. And I'd assume that this e- cash ETH, is what they're calling it, will be the last on the list of liabilities. So if the bank goes down, nobody with this cash ETH is going to get paid. They're going to be the, the least priority for these liabilities. Additionally, there are rules on cash, unlike Bitcoin. This cash ETH will have to obey all regulations on cash, cross-border, KYC, AML, etc. There is zero efficiency over and above regular credit cards. 
Some might say that this gives the dollar or the euro and Santander specifically exposure to smart contracts. So if that sector takes off, then, you know, they are first there have a first mover type advantage. But apart from smart contracts being mutable for the foreseeable future, the regulatory environment that needs to be completely built around this specific use case is immense. It's the old regulatory prison argument. All right, so that's for this story. You guys remember Marshall Long? He's a legendary Bitcoin scammer. Of, I mean, he has multiple scams to his his resume. Um, main ones are going to be Jaw the Jaw Miners, Mincy and uh, Mintpal, Cripsy. He had other things. He said he was the largest miner in North America. And he was even on that. I think it was the rise and rise of Bitcoin. He was on there talking about how huge his mining operation was. And he had like a, you know, looked all busy and answering phone calls and stuff. And and just like he's doing a lot of business. And he even uh, misquoted some numbers on there. So he didn't know his numbers. So his, his North America thing people looked around for it they looked for this power consumption and nobody could find it that then he said that oh it's split up in different places and yada 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 so you know it wouldn't be as obvious to find but basically that never no one could ever find it and he would never say where it was so he's lying <laughs> another thing was he says he's been in bitcoin since 2009 from the very beginning but people have like researched his past and shown that he's he didn't even say a mention of Bitcoin on the internet until 2013. So he's lying about that too. But anyway, and now oh, and he's been caught running with Roger Ver. So take that for what you will. But anyway, so uh, he's back in the news with this eBoost. It's a coin kind of platform specifically made for esports tournaments. And these these esports tournaments have become very popular. Um, so I just wanted to read a little bit of this because I found this article on BitcoinChaser.com, and I was just flabbergasted. So okay, the Bitcoin Chaser staff asked, "Why did eBoost creators decide to launch a non-mineable coin?" What a great question! Because <laughs> because. Non-mineable coins are stupid. Okay, 15 of the top, and this is what Marshall Long says, 15 of the top 25 coins on CoinMarketCap are non-mineable, including Ripple, Lisk, Factum, and Counterparty. The underlying technology behind eBoost blockchain is one of only two coins in existence that has both proof-of-work plus an automated checkpoint server validating every block from a separate miner and making sure it's from the original chain ensuring that a 51% attack cannot be made. Even Bitcoin doesn't have this protection. Well, so anytime you hear the word checkpoint or you read the word checkpoint to describe a network system or process, that is centralized. It's a centralized system. And it's non-mineable. What the fuck? Where are the incentives coming from? So then the next question is, are eBoost tokens secured through a private blockchain? And then Marshall Long says, eBoost blockchain um, will be viewable using any wallet or block explorer. Technically, it's a public blockchain using eBoost checkpoint server. Uh, 
So, so it's not it's not uh, decentralized at all. It's completely centralized. It's it's a Ponzi scheme in the same model as all his past schemes have been. Um, so it, again, anytime you hear the the name Marshall Long or you hear the word checkpoint, you know that it's a scam. <laughs> anyway, um, but what this does show. Because, you know, scammers will go to places they can make money into the emerging markets. And so this kind of, to me, even though this is a complete scam, and this thing is raised now in their ICO, it's raised like $5 million. It's ridiculous. Uh, you can't get out of a Ponzi scheme, people. This is an obvious Ponzi scheme. The only people that win in a Ponzi scheme are the people scamming. Everybody thinks they'll be able to get out, but they can't. And uh, so, yeah, just you're not going to be making any money off this. You're just throwing money at at this at Marshall Long, basically, so he can go and ride around with Roger Ver and dream up some more scams. <laughs> but the one good thing I have about this article is is it does show that this is an emerging market for Bitcoin. And probably counterparty type tokens. Um, so I do see this as a good sign that scammers are coming into this sports type of space, like the video game space, sports, online betting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That that market is going to explode here pretty soon. And so I do see this as a good sign. Except don't invest in Marshall Long projects. All right, next. Our next article comes via coinjournal.net. If you guys haven't checked out that their website, it's pretty good. I think they, they do a good job. I always look for alternatives to like Coindesk um, or what are the other ones? Cointelegraph, some, some of these that are major blockchain pumpers. I mean I went on to Coindesk just today and every single story on the front page is talking about either blockchain or Ethereum. It's not about Bitcoin anymore, even though Bitcoin is 90 plus percent of the total crypto space. They don't talk about Bitcoin at all. It's hilarious. But CoinJournal, they do a good job. They have Kyle, Kyle Torpy writing for them. So he has a good one here. Why miners are the lowest in the hierarchy of control over Bitcoin. That's not the story I'm going to talk about right now, but uh, maybe I'll cover that one on another Another episode. So the one I want to talk about right now is uh, from last week, and it's about a – well, the headline is Investment Bank Praises Bitcoin Core Scaling Roadmap in Price Report. Needham and Company put together a very impressive report on Bitcoin. They covered everything from segregated witness to lightning network to sidechains in a very – uh, I would say comprehensive manner for investors. And these are people not like the the people probably listening to this podcast that are uh, somewhat obsessed with Bitcoin. But th this is for these those investors. You know, they're worried about their portfolio. Um, and so they, they think, well, if I buy a little bit of Bitcoin, then it'll be good. So anyway, their price projection in this report has increased from uh, – 655 earlier this year, which was pretty damn spot on. It spent a lot of time between 700 and 600, and now it's increased to five or sorry, 848. 
So I think that's pretty good sign for a price between 800 and 900. I mean, these guys have been on in the past. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to read one little paragraph from this this article. So the developments pointed out by Needham and Company can all be found in the Bitcoin Core scaling roadmap, with the exception of side chains, which are sometimes not viewed as a mechanism for scaling. Needham and Company also explicitly stated their support for the generally conservative approach taken by contributors to Bitcoin Core. I think that's great. These guys have their head on straight. And just like I've said in other episodes, the central bankers know what Bitcoin is. They know about Bitcoin and they hate it with a passion. It's not that they don't think it will work. They know it works and they fucking hate it. That's the same with a lot of these investors like Jamie Diamond or uh, I'm trying to think of some, uh, you know, big hedge fund guys that have come out in the past talking about uh, how Bitcoin's stupid or Bitcoin will not succeed. But these guys have their head on straight. Their company has a 31 year um, history of providing, you know, financial services for for their investors and they have a very comprehensive bitcoin report out and they support bitcoin core they think that they like this quote says they support uh, the generally conservative approach which is pretty incredible in this whole aura of blockchain this and blockchain that and uh move fast and break things right that's the the mantra of ethereum and most other blockchain projects out there so anyway, this, this was refreshing. Take a look at this report. The link is in show notes. Altcoin. Bill. Welcome to Altcoinville, the time where I talk about all things in the wacky world of altcoins. Today, the main article here, I have two, two things to talk about, but the main one is going to be this Peter Todd blog post. Uh, from last week, I think it was now, or no, just a few days ago. And he talks, you know, he's, he's come out vocally against multiple implementations on these cryptocurrencies. So, like, uh, Ethereum just had their guest client have an exploit and it got DDoS. They had to stop trading, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it was a big deal because one, one implementation had this exploit. And so he says that multiple implementations don't help. They hurt. And uh, he even says that any sane person would stop using Ethereum right now. He got some pushback from the Ethereum community that what he was saying was blasphemy against programming, I guess, or code. They don't understand. They're saying, no, multiple invitations are great. Well, Peter Todd lays out a very convincing argument in, in layman's terms, in everyday parlance here. He starts off by saying, hey, if, <clears throat> if I'm going to – I want to design this thing for two things, reliability to send money and reliability to receive money. And that's a cryptocurrency, obviously. But then he goes into, okay, well, what if I was building an electrical system or designing an electrical system for a building? It's not just keep the lights on. No, I have multiple steps to get there. So reliably first, I don't kill people because you can keep the lights on and burn down the building, right, and kill people. 
Uh, that's number two is reliably don't burn down the building. Number three, reliably don't allow the power distribution system to be permanently damaged by faults. So if you can't keep the lights on, don't make a failure, just destroy the whole system, right? Because you'd rather get the lights back on in a short amount of time than have it completely destroyed and have to redo everything. So he's saying to uh, attain that reliability of keeping the lights on, you have to have other steps in there. He uses another example, another everyday or every, uh, yeah, everyday example of fire pumps in like a fire suppression system in a big building, you know, with the sprinklers and stuff. So he says that the fire pumps need to have high availability versus um, the high reliability of the electrical system. So they need to be they need to be ready when called upon. They they usually aren't on circuit breakers because they don't care the building's already on fire, so just get the water up there. So there's this this trade-off between high reliability and high availability. Um well, can't you have both? Can't you have both high reliability and high availability by having maybe two pumps going and one of them is, or they're both on circuit breakers. So if one of them fails, then the other one will keep working. And he's saying, no, that there's too many variables to account for. And even, you know, every time you add redundancy, you add variables into the system. And there's more places for it to fail in the first place. And I've said this in the past with these altcoins and stuff, that when you add more capability to a network like this, you exponentially increase the attack surface of that coin. So anyway, then um, he goes into the need for both high availability and high reliability in consensus systems and redundance, redundancy in those systems. Well... So all these implementations are seen as a good thing. But he has a quote here. In a consensus system, naively adding redundancy subtracts from reliability in a particularly bad way. Not only do you have twice as much code that can have bugs in it, previously harmless subtle implementation differences are now serious problems. So yeah, you're going to get it wrong. And something that is very, very subtle, that's a difference between these two languages you know the translation of what they're supposed to do turns into a big fucking problem when you take it on the scale of an entire network so that that's kind of what he's saying here then he breaks down the ethereum yellow paper right so ethereum has a white paper that vitalik wrote but it was so shitty that gavin wood had to come in and he wrote the yellow paper and he's some excerpts from the yellow paper, and it's all math. Almost 100% math with all of these different, um, you know, symbols and, and variables and, and yada yada. Yeah, that's true that this is a uh, cryptographic system, so math is a huge part of it. But look at Satoshi's white paper. It has one page of simple math. One page out of eight and this, the yellow paper for Ethereum is so confusing that I can't believe anybody would be willing to pick through this other than maybe some scientists and, and things. But, and also he points out that since the bailout, uh, the Dow bailout, the Dow buckle, 
they haven't updated the yellow paper. So there's a lot of problems. There's no spec out there for Ethereum. And he asked for a spec. He's like, can I have a spec? Um, because <laughs> uh, this, this Gun, Professor Gun, he put a tweet out on the 18th of September and said, this is what the tweet said, it's pretty nice that ETH has a spec and multiple implementations in cases when there's a bug in a particular implementation. But that didn't really help because they had to stop trading it. They had to stop trading it anyway when one of the implementations had a problem. And then how do you make sure that the implementations are saying the exact same thing? If you're written in different languages, it's like translating a book. You don't get the exact translation. It doesn't matter how good of a translator you are. If you have a text that's translated into, um, you know, four or five different languages, the meanings of each of those translations is going to be slightly different. And when you're talking about a consensus system that needs to be exact, it's almost impossible to do that. The probability of you getting it right is very, very low. Um, so, yeah, after Professor Gunn put this tweet out, then Peter Todd was like, well, I'd like to see that spec. Can I see a current spec? And he hasn't heard back from him. No one can give him a current spec. Nobody knows what's going on with Ethereum. I'm telling you, this is the biggest bubble in the space. Ethereum itself is the biggest bubble in the space. So, um, yeah, this crazy, check out this blog post. It's Pass it around to different people. If you know some people in your life that are, uh, or in your circle, that are blockchain maximalists, and they're hyped up on Ethereum, pass them this blog post and tell them, you know, hey, look, there are common sense people out there that are asking questions, and they can't be, these questions can't be answered well. So, Hopefully that wakes some of these people up to start asking these same questions. And I, I don't like to diss on Ethereum. That's not, I don't get off on dissing on Ethereum. Okay. I want to protect people's money. I want to provide a service to the market to, you know, put these questions out there. And I know Peter Todd's blog probably gets more reads than my podcast gets listens for sure. But I mean, if I can reach a few more people. And maybe you as a listener can reach a few more people and maybe we can save some people some money. Protecting people. That's, that's why I'm so negative on Ethereum because I want, it's going to blow up. It's going to be a spectacular, um, crash. It's going to be, or it's a slow grind. Maybe I've, I've said in the past, all these altcoins are going to slow grind down to nothing. But um, the bottom line is we want to say – I want to save people money, and I, I think you do too. So pass this blog post around to people. Maybe tweet it out. Um, yeah, that's it. Good job, Peter. Altcoins got some mainstream press this week via Motherboard. They have an article out called – why Bitcoin spinoffs are a dumping ground for memes about get-rich-quick schemes. Too bad for altcoins that it was very negative. Calling altcoins or tokens, they equate 
um, counterparty tokens to these altcoins as well. But they call them Ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes over and over and over again. And they point out the ludicrous nature of what a lot of these people are doing. Um, one of the quotes here, let me find it. So they say that some guy, Zohar, uh, these Zohar tokens, they're counterparty tokens, but they, they're giving, they were giving them away and um, they, they had a Reddit post that they linked to. And it's like, does anybody want them? Why? Why not? So just a bunch of crazy lunatics, like a bunch of 16-year-olds are doing all this stuff. But I, the one thing they got wrong that I want to point out here, and it's too bad that this is the example that they used in this piece, is that counterparty tokens, they're, one, they're not altcoins, okay? They're, they're tokens. And the difference there in my mind is altcoins have a completely different blockchain, or a completely different network, I guess. Because all of these things don't necessarily have blockchains, or what I would consider a blockchain. But uh, Counterparty uses Bitcoin, right? And they have, uh, I remember this was back maybe in uh, 2014, someone was asking me about altcoins and stuff, and I was like, I own one altcoin. And still to this day, even though I did dabble in a little bit of Litecoin, a little bit of Dash, um, you know, last year, trading mainly not like holding for long term or anything but uh the the only thing that i've held long term is counterparty tokens and i don't know why i i there i don't think there's a fixed supply of them but i like the concept and so i wanted to hold some you know in case they they rocketed in value or something or counterparty became very popular because i think counterparty is uh, for the most part, a sound idea. How it's implemented, though, it's it's confusing. So I I don't know all the ins and outs on exactly how it's implemented, but the, the idea is sound because it's based on Bitcoin. So I must have been a Bitcoin maximalist way back in 2014. But. Uh, so yeah, counterparty, the, the tokens, while yes, like this guy, this Zohar or these Zohar coins, they are run by scammers, but the entire pro, I mean, it's, it's more transparent. This scam is in your face. People know it's a scam, but counterparty tokens are used for some good things like the bit girls show over in Japan. Um, they're used for I, I remember when Tatiana coin came out. It's that's an interesting idea. I don't know how like successful it has been or if other things like that can work. But I think counterparty tokens can be used for centralized services for sure. One hundred percent. If you want to use like these banks, if they wanted to really have a like some implementation using a blockchain in some respect, they should be using these counterparty tokens. And I think these counterparty tokens can be used with Lightning. I mean, I looked at the FAQ for counterparty a little while ago, and I'm pretty sure that counterparty tokens can be used, can be transacted on Lightning. So um, that's pretty good. Now, colored coins, I don't think can, because colored coins are uh, wallet dependent. If you send color coins to a wallet that isn't color coin compatible, 
you lose those color coins or you lose the token or whatever is is uh, designated by that little bit of Bitcoin. But counterparty, I think, can be sent with lightning. So that's pretty cool. Um, so these, these counterparty tokens are not altcoins. They are tokens. And the scams on counterparty are more transparent and more obvious. Where altcoins can hide behind, oh, we're, uh, we're reinventing the blockchain or, you know, we're, we get it right where Bitcoin gets it wrong, et cetera, et cetera. I, I, those are a little bit harder to pick out for a lot of people. But the, the counterparty, <clears throat> for the general population, counterparty tokens, the scams that are there are much more apparent. So anyway, that's all I have to say about this. It's cool that Motherboard and, and there's all sorts of mainstream publications putting stuff out about Bitcoin. I mean, there's so freaking much that it's it's almost impossible to keep track of. Um, I remember back when I first got into Bitcoin, I would be waiting days. I you know I would I would check all my sites, my RSS feeds or whatever, and uh, I would be waiting days for good content on Bitcoin. Hold on, a truck's driving by. I'd be waiting days for this content. Now it seems like there, you know, every minute there's a new article out and some, and a lot of it is very good. I mean, there's a lot of freaking noise out there. And that's one reason why I try to talk about a lot of these articles for people because, you know, it's hard to pick through the noise, but there is a ton of good content, a ton of good insights. So yeah, anyway, th it's good to see that we're getting more mainstream press. And we, I know this is all Coinville, but we as a, as the Bitcoin space, we are getting a lot of content out there and people are reading about it. And eventually people are going to be like, well, shit, it's a thousand dollars. It's $2,000 a coin. And I dismissed it two years ago when people were calling it, you know, that it was dead and it's still not dead and now it's at all time highs and what the hell is going on here and then they're going to start looking into it and they're going to you know people are going to start flooding in the fomo the real next phase of fomo isn't going to start until about probably $1500 a coin that's when the real fomo is going to hit and it it could go from 1500 to god maybe 5000 Seriously, and <laughs> man, some of my close friends that listen to this are going to think this is like the weird part of the show where I get about the future and it's going to be a Bitcoin future and Bitcoin's everything. But, you know, it really could explode in value. Like I say, people will start seeing these things and thinking, well, they XYZ publication, the Wall Street Journal told me that Bitcoin was dead back in 2014 and I missed the boat. Who who should I really be listening to? Who should I really be uh, looking? Where should I really be looking for information on this? And that's the same thing with altcoins, right? When all of these altcoins die, I mean, the only people that aren't going to be looking for good information are going to be the pumpers because they are they want to provide the information to these people and pump these coins. So when when all these coins fail, those those people hopefully. 
at least a percentage of those people will be like, well, where should I be getting my information? What outlet, what, what news outlets, coin, coin journal, um, Bitcoin magazine, uh, what, where should I be getting, you know, Bitcoin markets podcast? Where should I be getting my information? Because the people that I listen to are full of shit because all my investments went from, you know, say a hundred dollars to one dollar. So who should I be, maybe, who should I be listening to? Anyways, uh, let's go on to our featured article. Featured article. There's some huge news in the world of renewable energy. Abu Dhabi confirms a bid that they accepted a bid for a new solar power plant that is to produce electricity at 2.42 cents per kilowatt hour. It is the cheapest contract for electricity ever signed anywhere on planet Earth using any technology. As a comparison, natural gas, even though natural gas is at like historic lows for price, that it's estimated that natural gas produces energy at 5.6 cents per kilowatt hour. So this is less than half of that. And this isn't a one-off thing either. There's been a couple other bids this year that have been record lows. So in Mexico, they've had... Um, the cheapest solar bid in Mexico was 3.5 cents per kilowatt hour. And in Chile, the the most recent record low before this Abu Dhabi one was 2.91 cents. So that's, um, you know, 50 cents cheaper now in Abu Dhabi with this bid. And it's getting, and that's just one year. It's gone from 3.5 down to 2.4. What's going to be next year? 1.8 or something? There's been lots of, this uh, this story struck me because there's been lots of talk about centralization of mining in China, Bitcoin mining, obviously. Um, and that's due, you know, to cheap energy. They get subsidies. There's, I think the average is like four or five cents. Some places, what they do is, you know, they had all these ghost cities there and they had power plants made for these ghost cities. Well, nobody's freaking move into these ghost cities so that this power plant sitting there idle and the bitcoin miners are like well we'll use it so they have these mines out in the middle of nowhere using these dedicated power plants getting subsidized energy and these these uh, power plants you know communism you have to produce a certain amount right where uh, you have a quota to produce this much. Well, if they don't use that much energy from the plant, then it can be given away at drastically reduced prices or free. So China's been having the lead um, in, in Bitcoin mining. And a lot of people are worried because of the type of government that China has. It's kind of record with business, but I would argue that it's record with business over the last decade has been better than the U.S. or Europe. But anyway, so uh, this low solar power is showing that Bitcoin mining will be more decentralized in the future, especially if you look at some of the limits now on ASICs. So ASICs have achieved, I think it's 16 nanometer size for their circuits. And that is, there is not much more innovation that's going to come in that respect for the near future. 
it's kind of a limit it's a physical limit on these chips so all of the innovation is going to come from making electricity producing electricity or from like cooling or maybe even data center type uh, management you know where what is on what rack where how big is it like all of these type of things are going to see a lot of advancement in the next year or two years while ASICs kind of slowly grind to maybe they get a little bit more efficient in the next two years but 16 nanometers is about where where the innovation stops for now um, so yeah there's going to be a lot of decentralization pressures in Bitcoin mining I also want to point out that um, where this was this plant is going to be built Abu Dhabi I've spent some time there and they now out of the Emirates Abu Dhabi is the most oil rich and so that this being built there is interesting you know what is their play here are they are they trying to be more just continue to be the energy producer of the area so they're trying to keep the lead in all of these different types of energy production um, Dubai is much less oil rich and they're much more dependent on tourism and business and smuggling i mean dubai was a is a huge center for smuggling the lots and lots of gold is smuggled through there um they have uh, they're really close to iran you know less than 100 miles from iran across the persian gulf there you know when we had the the sanctions on iran the world had sanctions on iran that uh, Dubai was a huge center of smuggling, huge. So they have this kind of culture of uh, gold, sound money, energy production, and and kind of gray market things, black market things. Bitcoin fits there perfectly in my mind, perfectly. So... Are they going to be the new kind of hub for mining? Is a lot of mining going to go there? Being in a hot desert isn't maybe that conducive to Bitcoin mining. But, you know, the, the, like I say, the technology is going to be like liquid cooled. There's going to be tons of innovation on exactly how to do this mining in mining in data centers. So uh, that's where the innovation is going to come from. And what better place than the emirates because they're hot they need to innovate here you know the innovation comes where it's needed and this type of innovation is needed here so i can see lots of mining happening over here in abu dhabi and dubai so take that for what it's worth as a related story here we have a thing that i saw with uh, california because i started looking into some of these more more of these ideas i know there's lots of solar and wind and hydro power done here in the u.s so i wanted to look at that up and california I, I see that they are producing too much energy as well and what happens when you have a a huge amount of supply the price goes down right i found this it's kind of a neat article and i'll link in the show to solarelectricpower.org and let me just read the very first paragraph from this. Actually, it's on, well, the link will take you to page 10. Yeah, so let me just read. 
On four separate occasions last year, the California Independent System Operator ordered generators to reduce a total of about 1,700 megawatts of wind and solar power on the grid, enough to power nearly 1.3 million California homes. The highest curtailment occurred on April 27th when 1,100 megawatts were disconnected in the morning hours. So during these peak times during the day, um, they are having an excess amount of energy production, a lot, a huge amount of excess. So our price is going to go down, probably. I'm, <laughs> that's a pretty good guess. During certain times of the year, I mean, they even talk about hydro here. During certain times of the year, the the spring melts and you know the the snow melts on the mountains and the the runoffs are at their peak, the highest point. The hydro plants are running at full capacity, and there's not enough demand for that power either. So they've had to shut down, and that's during the night, as well. So hydro isn't just during the day; it's it's during the night. And they've been having nighttime overages too. Wow, I mean, this stuff, mining is going to decentralize around the world, probably because of renewable energy. But we'll see. We'll see how this goes. Solar power, 2.42 cents per kilowatt hour in Abu Dhabi. Flashpoint. Welcome to Flashpoint. This is the part of the story where I, or <laughs> this is part of the podcast where I talk about, you know, banking problems or global finance, geopolitics and things. I've been concentrating more on like trade wars and finance stuff, banking. And now I want to bring it back into uh, kind of rebellion or armed uprisings, terrorism, and things like that. I did do a, a piece on the Turkey situation a while back, and this is somewhat related, I think. So, and this story has also been, you know, has been shut down by the mainstream media. There's not a lot of people talking about it. I mean, there's a lot of stories when you Google it, but uh, talking about it on mainstream media, it, it's it's not being done. So what is it? Well, sparks are flying between the arch rivals India and Pakistan over Kashmir once again. This area, this region is has a long history since the partitioning of India and Pakistan back in 1947. So remember, um, India and this Pakistan, this area was a territory of the British Empire. And in 1947, they got their independence and they partitioned the country uh, the one area into two well actually three different countries so you had um pakistan in the northwest india in the middle and bangladesh in the east uh, pakistan and bangladesh were the muslim countries while india was the predominantly hindu country there was mass migrations at this time too so entire families and entire towns picked up and moved their whole life over to another another country just because of this partitioning that was happening well since then i mean there was a war in 1947 between pakistan and india over this Kashmir region um in 1962 there was another one and then there was even another one more recent than that also china hasn't been out of this uh 
conflict because they are bordered this they border this region too they had an india china or sino indian war i think i don't know it was 60s or 70s over this this exact area now Kashmir itself is high altitude there's a major glacier there that lots of people have been fighting over um it, not really populated, I mean, relative to other parts of India or Pakistan. But uh, the major population areas in Kashmir are Muslim. So it fits more with uh, Pakistan. Pakistan has 37-ish percent, 40 percent control over this area, uh, governmental control over this area. And they, they, it's both claimed by India and Pakistan at this time. So what happened recently? Well, there was a quote-unquote terrorist attack that uh, some people from Kashmir partook against India. They went there's a I guess a military post there. They went in and attacked it, and 19 uh, Indian soldiers died. In a response to that, the Indian military launched. Uh, retribution attacks against this region that happened to be in Pakistan and going after these quote-unquote terrorists. Um, nobody knows the affiliation on the ground of these people, but you know this is a tactic we've seen before. In World War II, one of the excuses used by Germany to invade Poland was that Germans dressed up in Polish uniforms and attacked their own outpost. And then they said, look, we found some Polish soldiers here. And so we need to, they're attacking us. We need to go take out Poland. So this, I mean, uh, you know, that that's one of the kind of initial false flags. So this could be Pakistan doing this. This could be India doing this. This could be terrorists doing this. Western-backed terrorists. The Pakistan has a long history with terrorism. They're on, they border Afghanistan, and that border is very porous. The people trained and armed by the U.S. and also fighting the U.S. and also fighting Russia, you know, or the Soviet Union back in the day, they, they can go back and forth across that border between Afghanistan and Pakistan very easily. And maybe some of them have found their way up to Kashmir. And now they are causing trouble up there. It's... It, it's very destabilizing, and the specific way that this this happened uh, makes me question exactly what's going on. The official story is there were terrorists that attacked this Indian outpost, but who's behind the terrorism? I mean, Pakistan borders Iran, and you know we have destabilized the west of Iran with uh, Iraq and with Syria. And now maybe this is a full encirclement of Iran, even though we just, you know, took the sanctions off Iran. I mean, that doesn't mean that we're buddy-buddy with them. So this could be, this could be, um, it's, well, it's not out of the realm of possibility that this is a Western proxy war once again. This is a tinderbox area, and you just throw a couple sparks in there, and who knows what's going to happen. Maybe this has the intention of destabilizing Pakistan. The big thing here, too, to remember is 
that these are both nuclear powers, both India and Pakistan. And Saudi Arabia has come out and said, you know, we could easily buy nukes from Pakistan if we needed them. So Pakistan, I mean, it's a little bit looser country there with the the nuclear uh, bombs. Very, very bad times. And uh, I also want to point out that the Arab Spring started back in 2010. And what else started back in 2010? That was the European banking crisis, right? So... It's interesting that the Arab Spring happened uh, to coincide with that and that it kind of took the highlight off of the uh, weakness of, of European banks and the weakness of the European project in general. I mean, even back then, you're starting to see cracks. Areas like uh, Catalonia and Spain and Venice, as well as Crimea and and. All sorts of other little independent areas around. Scotland was big. All of these places were starting to vote for independence or have independence votes. And taking the, the eye off the ball in Europe and focusing it on this Arab Spring might have been a Western strategy. And now look, the the European banks are having trouble again. Oh, there's another proxy war happening. And that involves a tinderbox area and a Muslim country. Um... It could be coincidence, but I don't know if it is, and nobody nobody knows at this point. But it's it's a possible scenario. Another coincidence is that this is happening right at the time the CNY is being added to the SDR basket. So you know, there's a basket of currencies the you uh, that the IMF uses the uh, U.S. dollar, the pound, the euro, and the yen, and the Yuan was going to be the fifth or is going to be the fifth, but this happens on the border of China right at the time that this, the CNY is getting added to this basket. And when you get added to this basket, you, you can become a reserve currency. So like, um, you know, your, your foreign currency reserves that a country holds for import export type stuff or whatever trade balances that is going to be held or can be held in cny and i mean it has the backing of the imf to to be to form that function i think right now only one percent of foreign currency reserves in the world are chinese yuan but china has like 40 percent of trade or something like that or 40 percent of exports in the world come from china so it's quite um undervalued at least as a reserve currency and now that they're being added to sdr basket it's kind of a coincidence that this is happening right on their border i mean if there was a war uh on the southern border of the united states it would shake confidence in the dollar it would shake and you know the if the united states didn't take a lead diplomatically or do something like that this would shake major confidence in the dollar um, and maybe that is one of the ideas behind this conflict. I mean, if you look at all the border regions of China, this is the hottest place. And it's, is it a coincidence that this happens right here, right now? I don't know. The CNY getting added, European banks imploding, 
and now cashmere. I mean, it just, it fits, it checks too many boxes. It fits too many things. I don't know if this is a natural occurrence or some sort of, you know, proxy war again by funded terrorists funded by the U.S. and other Western countries. Who knows? So as you're, if you're watching the news and this becomes a big situation there in the India-Pakistan border, Kashmir region, just remember that you can defund them by using Bitcoin. You can defund the government proxy wars. You can defund the violence on our streets that's happening. You can defund the uh, discrimination that happens by government, the, the class system that's imposed by government, the restrictions on free trade. You can defund all that. You can work around it with Bitcoin. Um, all of the problems that people ever protest against they're protesting against government, the government policy, the government action or inaction. People don't protest against other individuals or even against cultural things. People don't protest against that. They protest against government stuff. And so if you want a more peaceful world, if you want a more equitable world, you must defund them by using Bitcoin. I mean, I guess gold too, but gold uh, gold is pre-electronic age and, and Bitcoin is post-electronic age. There's a big divide there. So if you want to defund all of these injustices and yada, yada, yada. I mean, I'm not saying that the, the world will be a utopia after a Bitcoin world is, is utopia. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that uh, there really won't be much to protest because you'll be able to they won't be able to do anything governments and and wars and stuff uh, people that make war people that do violence they they understand two things violence and money if you take the money out of the equation and they can't control the money the the violence drops on itself it, it, it's unsustainable so anyway that's that's it Thank you for joining me. This has been Bitcoin and Markets. My name is Ansel Linder. You can find links to everything I talk about in the show notes at bitcoinandmarkets.com. There you'll also find a QR code if you'd like to donate and support me making this content. Last but not least, I'll be off next week on vacation internationalizing my children. So no show. Hopefully when I come back, Bitcoin has moved. <laughs> All right. See you guys next time. Peace. Peace.